In today's episode, we step away from the book of Acts on this first Friday, which is free text first Friday, to talk about, well, motivation. In the paradise of Eden, humanity enjoyed an idyllic existence. They were at peace with God, Adam and Eve. They were at peace with nature, with themselves. But this blissful harmony was shattered by sin, which led to death giving rise to guilt and fear that have enslaved humankind ever since. How does Christ's redemption liberate us from this bondage? How does it transform us from slaves of fear into God's own children? Well, this episode will compare and contrast the life of spiritual slavery with the joyful freedom experienced as a baptized child of God. Good morning, blessed Pentecost, and happy for Free Text First Friday. Today is Friday, August 4th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible by listeners like you whose prayers and contributions support KFUO's ministry. Of course, I'm also very grateful to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation who sponsors this program. They do some great work, folks. They translate, publish, distribute Christ-centered, Reformation-driven materials, and they distribute them around the world, free of charge to those who need them. So you can explore LHF's impactful work and learn how they can help you and how you can help them on their website, lhfmissions.org. Well, joining me on this special episode, he was just on the program for the first time not too long ago, uh, but welcome back to the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard. He's the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. Uh, pastor Richard, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Hey, it's good to be here. I'm excited to have you back. It's just been a couple of episodes, it feels like, but I've invited you back on this uh, free text first Friday. It's when we just, you know, we take a break from whatever book we've been going through and we talk about an ad hoc topic. And in this instance, sometimes I have a topic in mind. Sometimes I just reach out to an excellent guest like yourself and say, what do you want to talk about? And you chose today's topic, which uh, I don't know, why don't you explain exactly what we're going to be talking about today for the people? Yeah, well, actually, when you reached out to me, I was doing my sermon prep for the sermon last Sunday, and uh, I was just gripped by uh, Romans 8. We were kind of talking about that and studying. I, I study the text for Sundays with a group of pastors, and we do that every week on uh, on, on online through a Zoom app, and uh, visit a little bit about it, and I just was really gripped by this slavery of fear, and just thinking about how much of our lives are functioning uh, perhaps we could say in this veil of tears, this um, struggle of sin that we have, and it's kind of like the kind of like the air that we breathe. We don't see it; it's just a part of us. And uh, thinking about how much of our lives are functioning again from the spirit of slavery, uh, spiritual slavery, we, we would say. And then when you contrast that with being a child of God, how much different that is, uh, particularly in, in, in motivation, how we are motivated, how we, uh, what, 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 what kind of burdens we have and how we function in this world uh, that we find ourselves in. And so I think it's just a really fascinating contrast. And in fact, I don't, I don't think we can really even comprehend how great of a distinction there is between the both of them until we actually start comparing and contrasting both uh, perspectives. Now, we're going to do that today. Uh, 
But before we even get into our prayer, which I do want to begin with, I want you to lead us in prayer, but this isn't like a, an and or thing. I mean, there's a, ideally all Christians would be operating or would be motivated according to the faith that they have in Christ that's been given, but it really isn't black and white. We we all struggle with a variety of types of motivations, most of which can fall in these two categories, right? I mean, we no one has a perfect motivation for the things they do. Uh, even though we should strive for that. Right. And I mean, this comes back to the the famous passage in Romans chapter 7, which is uh, this distinction between uh, the, the what we could say, the old Adam, the, the sinful nature and the new man in Christ. And so uh, all of our motives are typically uh, twofold. Uh, we have the good that we want to do, the evil we don't want to do, and we simultaneously do them all the time. And so, you know, what, what Paul's argument is in, in Romans 8 is that, uh, we have been freed from uh, slavish fear unto Christ and, and, and to be a child of God. But uh, as that old hymn says, we're prone to wander, we're prone to leave the God that we love. Or as the uh, Gospels state that we're like a dog returning back to its own vomit. And so we have this tendency to always return back to our uh, slavish fear, uh, guilt, and uh, so forth. And so this is a constant battle, which is, you know, when I visit with my my saints of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, many of them, uh, as they get towards the end, uh, on their deathbed per se, uh, they, they look forward to being done with that war with the sinful old Adam, to be done with the war with the devil and the world itself, and to be uh, released uh, unto Christ into paradise, and then to await the resurrection of the body. And so uh, there's a sense where there's, there's a grueling uh, war within, uh, a war outside of ourselves, this, this tension between this all the way through the all the way through the end uh, to the great eschaton, the very end uh, of, of 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 our existence as, as far as life, um, and then when we're actually pass away unto paradise with Jesus, then then we're free from it, obviously. Um, but when it comes down to this, I think it's understanding the war is is a great help. Understanding the distinction between the two uh, is a great benefit to us, even though we'll, we'll never be free from that battle. Always prone to uh, get back to that slavish fear. Um, but to be aware of it is probably, I, I say, a big part of the battle. We, uh, of course, drown the old Adam in the waters of baptism, but as it's colloquially said, he's still a pretty good swimmer. He keeps uh, resisting that. Uh, you mentioned Romans 7. It's where Paul says, and it really is, I don't know, something that I can connect to as I struggle throughout my own life. Uh, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Uh, Later in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Uh, Obviously, St. Paul, or maybe it's not obvious, but St. Paul is not giving or credence to or condoning sinful behavior as if, oh, well, there's nothing we can really do about it. This is just, we're always going to sin, so we might as well not bother. But for those who, like myself, like you, and many others, I, many every Christian at some point in their life, have just struggled with this, Lord, I genuinely want to follow your law. Why do I keep slipping into sin? I think that's really the discussion we're going to have today, right? Why Why do we—you're not alone if you're struggling against sin, I guess is one way to put it. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think I think the, the the challenge is is when we acknowledge our sinful nature and we acknowledge the struggles with sin. Uh, again, we have to be very, very, very careful that we're not uh, coming across as if we're celebrating or supporting that. Um, there, there is not to be an inch given towards sin uh, in ourselves, uh, and we look at the reason being uh, we don't belong to sin. We're not uh, slaves of sin. Uh, we're, we're children of God. And so it's an issue of who our master is. When Jesus is our master, Jesus is not an author of sin. So when we sin, um, there needs to be repentance, uh, acknowledgement of that sin, and then a, a rushing to Christ for his forgiveness and for his care and his strength. And so uh, if we were to actually embrace sin and support sin, then we would be making Jesus an author of sin, which, um, as we know, uh, uh, they, they can't mix. Um, uh, righteousness and sin cannot mix. Uh, the only time that... Uh, uh, we see Christ with with sin is when He's uh, atoning for our sin as our great substitute, as the great one who uh, takes the great exchange, taking our sin to be made sin on our behalf. Um, but apart from that, we we look at this when when we uh, consider who our master is. Uh, we there's two masters out there. There's master sin and master Jesus, and we belong to Jesus. So when we do sin, uh, that brings us to repentance and to war against that because it's not. Frankly, it's not who we belong to. We belong to Christ. We belong to light. We belong to forgiveness. We belong to hope, uh, the resurrection, and so forth. Well, before we get too much further, let's begin our time together in prayer. Uh, I'm just eager to get into the conversation. If you would lead us in that prayer, I'd appreciate it, brother. Yes, uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of being made heirs of the kingdom of God. Thank you for snatching us from darkness unto light in our baptisms, marking us and redeeming us, marking us as your own. Uh, bless us continually as we live underneath uh, Master Jesus as our uh, caretaker, as the one who forgives and sustains us, creating us a clean heart and renew a right spirit in us each and every day as we do fight this battle against uh, the slavery of sin, the slavish fear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Heading to Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 12 through 17, Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, those verses seem to be kind of a, a theme passage, I think, for the discussion today, um, that we are to live according to the flesh. Uh, take us through a little bit, you know, the, the average Christian is going to consistently struggle with wanting to keep the law. And I've had parishioners come to me and say, oh, I'm very worried that um, my sin is just going to exclude me from the kingdom, or or I feel like I might have committed the unforgivable sin, you know, that misunderstanding. Uh, it, it seems like when Christians are concerned about the sin in their lives, no matter how small, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in them. At least that's usually where I begin in my attempt to comfort them with the gospel, and that is that people who reject the Holy Spirit, people who reject Christ, people who are slaves to sin, 
They're not too concerned about their behavior. But Christians who struggle with it, ironically, suffer with their sins, um, do so because they know better and because of their faith, which saves them. It's it's sort of a cruel irony in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but I've, I've had conversations like this probably, oh, dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times where somebody comes into my office and they just say, hey, Pastor, I need to talk. And and uh, gosh, you know, I hate to admit this. And this is what's going on, X, Y, and Z. And they share it and and, I, and, and the head will turn up and say, I suppose you're, you're, you're upset or you're ashamed of me. And, and I'm like, upset? My goodness, I'm not upset. I'm saying, God be praised you're here. God be praised that you have uh, seen that this is sin that is uh, uh, ensnaring you in your life. God be praised that you're abhorring this. Uh, that is that is evident as you as you just stated here. That's evident that the Holy Spirit's at work, uh, and that you that you have identified the enemy who wants to what uh, destroy you and destroy your life and and to snatch you uh, from the good grace of God. And so God be praised that you are here in my office that we can confess it. And uh, well, what do we do about it, Pastor? Well, we 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 go to the uh, sanctuary and we kneel boldly um, at the altar and we confess that sin. And then me as a pastor. I can place my hand on your head and absolve you in the name of Jesus. And then uh, I love that part. I, I kick him out of the sanctuary. And I said, go home. And we're not going to talk about it anymore. Well, why aren't we going to talk about it? Well, you're forgiven. You're forgiven in Jesus. Um, so, you know, go. Go in peace. And and so then we forgive in Jesus. Until next time. And next time you come back again and we, we, we confess it and we hear the forgiveness of Jesus and over and over and over. And so you're absolutely 100% right uh, the, to, to war against uh, this sinful old Adam and sin itself um, to acknowledge that it exists is huge, and, and and that's probably perhaps half the battle. I mean, if you think about it, you know, I, I can recall I'll give you an example. I can recall when I moved to Southern California, uh, one of my first calls out of seminary, they put a North Dakota boy down in uh, Los Angeles, <laughs> my wife and I, and uh, what we noticed right away in, in living in Los Angeles was the smog, and it was it was so evident to us. I, I would leave my apartment. And I'd, I'd breathe in and I would just feel it in my lungs. And to go from North Dakota, fresh North Dakota air to uh, smog, I, I noticed it all the time. My eyes were watering. Uh, it, it hurt when I breathed. And, uh, you know, it was something that was very, very prevalent. And I'd mention it to a lot of the people, the parishioners. I'm like, man, this smog is just really getting to me for my allergies. And then the majority of the people that I ran into, they would say, oh, yeah, I guess we're so used to it. it, it we just don't even notice it. It just is what it is. And unfortunately, that is one of the tactics in which that sin works, uh, the slavery of sin, is it can numb us to the point where it's just a part of our uh, our existence, where we just, you know, oh yeah, that's just smog. Um, and this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, uh, they kind of set this uh, template or this pattern of how things work in this world. And unfortunately, we're so prone to just be used to the way uh, that this veil of tears, that this uh, world that is drenched in sin and fallen in itself, uh, that we often don't even realize it and recognize it. And so, again, th- my point being is when Christians recognize uh, sin at work in them and their neighbor, and they can acknowledge it, I'm saying, God be praised because they're aware of it to begin with. If the world today is the one that's filled with smog, that some of us, are, our eyes are burning and we're coughing over it, and some of us are just used to it, then I guess we could say that Eden, right, before the fall into sin, that would be like the, 
the smog free existence. You know, Adam and Eve didn't even know what sin was. They certainly didn't struggle under fear or uh, a rebellion until they rebelled. Uh, so, so, you know, that's God's intention for us is not to constantly, from the beginning, not to constantly struggle with our sins, but just to live according to his will so that we don't have to um, live in that fear. But of course, that didn't last forever. In fact, it didn't last very long at all. Um, you know, what is the motivation? Tell us about the garden. Tell us about, you know, the peace that Adam and Eve had with with God and themselves. Um, tell us about, you know, the way it should be, <laughs> the way it used to be. Yeah, I remember an old professor in seminary once, he just said, you know, if you consider everything that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden, uh, they had peace with God. And that would be what we call theology, uh, the relationship of mankind with God himself as theology. They had uh, peace between each other, Adam and Eve, which would be what we call sociology, uh, the relationship between two people or people in groups. They had uh, a good relationship with themselves and the land, which is ecology. Uh, that is the relationship between us and uh, the the uh, uh, world around us, uh, the, the, the land that we walk on, the environment, and so forth. Uh, they also had um, peace with themselves. They were naked and felt no shame. And so that's what we call psychology. It's a study of our relationship to ourself. And so all of these ologies are ways in studying the effects of the fall of Genesis 3 and how sin wreaked havoc on all of these aspects. And so before sin, there's complete harmony with God, with each other, with themselves, with the land, and so forth. Uh, everything was good. Not, not really good. It was very, very good. And uh, if you can, I, don't, I don't know if we can even imagine uh, what it was like to have the Garden of Eden. But then, as we know from what happened with Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, uh, they sinned. And so we, we see in Genesis 3 a couple small little uh, phrases that are, are some big, big hitting phrases. You know, Adam said, I was afraid. And so there, all of a sudden, we have fear. Uh, I was afraid. And then he said what? I was naked. So he felt shame. So he has uh, fear and he has shame. Then he says, I, I hid myself. Uh, so this is a self-inclination to, to control the situation. Um, and then also what ends up happening is he ends up blaming Eve uh, for this. And then blame enters the, the whole picture. And then there's failure. So you have fear and shame and control and failure and accusation. Uh, they all emerge uh, from this uh, Genesis 3, which was not present before. And then that has basically permeated all of life. And so uh, I use this illustration with the confirmation students. We are so used to living uh, in this veil of tears that we, we function in ways because of the fall all the time. And for example, I tell the youth, I said, you know, um, when we go to bed at night, what do we do? Um, at least in our house, uh, we have, let's see, one, two, uh, three, four, we have four doors in our house. And I always say, did everybody lock the doors? And I go around, we lock all the doors. Well, why? You know, why do we, why do we lock the doors? Well, because we're, we're fearful of somebody breaking in and stealing something and hurting us. And that's the result of what? Genesis 3. Uh, we have all of these uh, things in place in this world to offset fear, to to deal with shame, to deal with control and failure and accusation uh, and so forth. That's just, we, we take it for granted. It's like the smog that we breathe. One of the things, one of the lies of the devil and of the world 
is that, you know, God just wants to control all of your behavior. He just wants, he's, he's a, um, you know, he's a pendant. He wants to uh, make sure that you're, you're just his little puppets and he wants to control everything you do and punish you for your inability to keep it. That, that seems to be the non-believer's version of God's law. But we see here in the Garden of Eden, they had God's law, as simplistic as it was, and before they rebelled against it, they really were at peace. All of those um, ologies you were talking about, the ways in which we study the effects of the fall, those things they weren't concerned with at all, at least not on a conscious level, because they were living within the boundaries that God had set for them. And so now in these last days, we have those same boundaries. In fact, we have many, many more. But I think it's hard to convince people that when you follow after the law of God, especially when you do it out of faith, uh, it, it's, it's freeing. It's not confining. It allows you to live within the locked doors of your home, so to speak, uh, at peace, because you know that you're within the safe boundaries. Um, it's a shame, though, that the world is convinced that Christianity in general and, and God specifically just want to sort of, you know, cramp people's styles. He just wants to control people. Uh, but that's, that's, that's so far from the truth. Right, right. Well, and this is when I teach the confirmation students, when we go through the Ten Commandments, uh, it's very, very interesting. When I'm going through the Ten Commandments with the uh, confirmation students last, at least the last five years here at St. Paul's, one of the highlights of confirmation are the Ten Commandments, which I always found very interesting. And I ask them why. They say, well, because it's they're, 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 they're a good pastor. And, and I'm like, well, let's, let's ponder that for a moment. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I definitely teach when it comes to the Ten Commandments is that God is not giving these Ten Commandments to be a killjoy. Uh, he's not issuing these Ten Commandments to, as I think you said, stifle our fun. Uh, I think we have to understand that behind every commandment is a good gift that God is longing, longing to protect. And so, at least with the Confirmation students, when I go through that at St. Paul's, we, we talk about, well, let's just say the Fourth Commandment, uh, honor mom and dad. Well, what is God longing to protect? And the kids will say, well, the gift of authority. Well, why is authority a gift? You know, I'll ask them, and they say, because it protects us from anarchy. And we've talked a lot about anarchy and how devastating and how, um, oh my goodness, how, how devastating anarchy can be in a society and the ramifications of anarchy, how that can last for generations. And so then you get to the fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder. What is it uh, God uh, protecting in that uh, fifth commandment? He's protecting the gift of life. God wants us to have this precious gift of life, so he says, do not murder. Uh, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. God is protecting the gift of marriage and family. Uh, seventh commandment, uh, thou shalt not steal. God is protecting the gift of property. Uh, eighth commandment, thou shalt not give false testimony. God is protecting the gift of a good reputation. And then ninth and tenth, thou shalt not covet. Uh, he's protecting the gift of contentment. He wants us to be content. And so if you think about this, what, is, what does God want? He wants us to have good authority so we can be safe, we can sleep at night. He wants our lives to be protected. He wants to have good marriages uh, where husband and wives love each other and can raise children in, in, in that love and the nurture of a family. He wants us to have our property that we can be good stewards of, to function with a good reputation, all with contentment. And as you think about that, Man, that sounds an awful lot like Eden uh, to be right. to have that bliss, and so we we do have to get over this this notion in our culture that, and whether it's um, the culture misunderstanding the Ten Commandments or perhaps the church not teaching it correctly, we have to understand 
that the Lord God sees us as his dear children, as Christians, as his dear children, and he says, you know, don't murder because why? Life is precious. Your life is precious and your neighbor's life is precious. And I don't want that gift to be soiled. I don't want that gift to be ruined. And so these Ten Commandments are loving, good gifts that God gives to us, ultimately to curb us from our old Adam. And that's what our old Adam does. And and and, and just real briefly, uh, as I talk about the old Adam with our confirmation students, the old Adam is kind of like that little kid at the uh, beach who just can't help himself, but he wants to come and destroy the sandcastle. He just wants to stomp on it. You know, you have this beautiful sandcastle and the old Adam just wants to come and spoil all of it or, or knock the deck of cards down to, to, to destroy it because that's the nature of the old Adam. And the Lord God longs to protect us from that sinful old Adam, the devil in the world, because he wants to, in essence, give us these good gifts. So we have, you know, God wanting us to give give us these good gifts, and we have people resisting them. And of course, that resisting, that resistance comes from their or our own sinful natures and the fall. I mean, and again, it's a little simplistic, but it's worth bringing out that you know we're back in chapter three of Genesis when the serpent comes forward to or Satan through the serpent to sow doubt in the hearts of. Eve and Adam, who was with her, uh, he begins with, and we've said this a lot, but it's worth repeating, he begins with sowing doubt about God's word, or even God's, actually more specifically, I think I should say, God's motivation, right? He says, you know, did God actually say, and we talk about that all the time, oh, look, he's sowing doubt, but then he he questions God's motivation, verse 4, you won't surely die, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, et cetera, et cetera, with the implication being, and God doesn't want that for you. There's something hidden from you. There's something being kept from you, and that's really the appeal. Yes, doubt God's word, but really doubt God's motivation. And so today, I think that's what the spirit of fear is about, and we're going to talk about that when we come back from the break, but the spirit of fear, the slavery to sin is about saying, I'm worried that God's motivation for giving me this law, for instance, is to trip me up, to make me feel like a failure, to dangle in front of me the hope of eternal life, but then at the first mistake, he's going to send his wrath upon me or punish me. Um, that's, that is the lie that began in Eden that continues today, and we believe it because of sin. Yeah, this is this is good stuff. I mean, as far as the nature of fear itself, and and it'll be fun to talk about too. As far as all the uh, pronouncements where Jesus says over and over to his disciples, "Do not fear," um, and the opposite of that fear is is faith, uh, loving position of a child of God, uh, which is which is just great stuff. Absolutely. Well, we will talk about that and a lot more when we come back from break, folks. Don't go anywhere. Pastor Richard and I will. Pick up where we left off. We'll see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word, and I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard. He's the pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. Folks, over the air, as a podcast, online at KFUO, or using the KFUO radio app, no matter how you've connected with us this morning, I'm just grateful you're here. And if you have thoughts or questions about the show, you know you can reach me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail. Or you can find me on Facebook at Phil Boo. Now, uh, Pastor Richard, before the break, you know, we were just kind of getting into the turn. We were talking about Eden. We were talking about the way God intends for things to be. We were talking about God's motivation, which is, of course, that we could live a, a life free from the fear of death and free of the struggle of sin, and that life is waiting for us. But until the Jesus returns, here we are, right? We are post the fall. We struggle with our sins. Um, we live in spirits of fear. Uh, not that our lives are are destined to do that and that that's the only way to live, but that's sort of the default, right? That's the fallen human nature is to live. And in your sermon, you mentioned your sermon, I read it, and you wrote, when a person is in slavery and bondage, they live in fear of potential and future punishment. And to make things worse, those under the fear of slavery will often attack freedom. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, what does it mean to live in slavery and bondage? And what does that look like today in in, in our society? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when we think of this, let's just use the analogy of slavery, right? And so being a, a slave versus being uh, a child, being being heir of, of a father. So if a person's in slavery, they never know what's going to happen in the future. And so this is the illustration that Paul is actually laying forth in Romans chapter 8 by using that uh, analogy or that metaphor of a slave versus being a child. And so a slave is always going to be trying to function in the present time to evade any future punishment. And so everything everything they think, they say, and they do is going to be done in a way to make sure or try to ensure that their future is going to be one of goodness um, and one of wholesome, where they're not going to be um, neglected or hurt or so forth. And so constantly what happens for the motivation of somebody in slavery, again, is, is trying to offset future uncertainty. And unfortunately, um, when we look in our society, and and this is going to go kind of to the heart of the matter, and and I see this uh, uh, in a lot of different aspects in our culture, that when fear arises in the general public with all of us, fear is usually uh, not necessarily with the present uh, struggle, though that happens. Let's just say a natural disaster happens or something happens like that. There can be immediate fear in the media context in the day. 
But more often than not, fear is typically attached to some future evil that may come upon may come upon us. Now, here's the problem. There's a lot of leaders in our culture and so forth that people know this, and they will exploit that uh, fear in followers. Now, this can happen with uh, false teachers. It can happen with bad politicians. It can even happen in families where there's a potential threat in the future. And then here's the crux. Instead of getting the person potentially ready, uh, get them ready for the potential threat, which means to uh, prepare them and to get them ready for it in a, go- in a way that's good and nurturing, what can happen is a tyrant or a bad politician or a false teacher, they can then exploit the future fear to get some exploitation in the present right now. So in other words, let's just say hypothetically, that there's going to be potentially something bad in the future that's going to cause you a negative 10 points to your life. And so they, they, they dangle that in front. Now, it may or may, may or may not be true that something bad will happen. But a good leader is going to say, let's get you ready for that by preparing for that so we can endure it together. And that would be a proper use of addressing that threat. And we're going to have assurance as we go into it, knowing who we belong to and so forth. But a tyrant is going to come along and say, well, I'll tell you what, in order to avoid that negative 10 in the future, I need to what? Charge you a negative three points right now. And they're going to exploit the person in the present time, giving them the perception that they can avoid the negative fear in the future. And that is happening everywhere. And the problem is, is we're so given to fear as human beings that we oftentimes will gladly give up a right or will gladly give up some sort of suffering right now to avoid a potential future suffering in the future. And we often do that at the hands of somebody that's an evil leader. What would you say to unbelievers who would describe God as a tyrant, as someone who is saying, there's this horrible thing awaiting you, and I have to impose these rules on your life now so that, um, and, and you basically have to make sure that you don't end up headed to this evil place called hell. Uh, that is how unbelievers often describe God. They, they miss the gospel because, well, they're just willfully ignorant in many ways, or they make a caricature of God, or, and I think this is more common, they apply human motivating or motivations. What motivates a human, they apply that to God, which isn't the case. But how would you discuss it with someone who says, well, I don't see the difference between a politician who's saying, do X, Y, and Z and give me power now so that you can avoid a potential future punishment, and, and God who says, you know, if you are outside of faith, you're going to hell. Yeah, I would say that, okay, I would say that they would be right. Now, now obviously, there would be a sense where I would think it would be an unfair caricature of God himself, but let's just say for the sake of discussion— uh, if they were to state that, I would say, you know, you're right insofar as there's no gospel. And uh, they, they say, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, if you, if you eliminate the cross of Christ, the redemption of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, to a certain extent, you would be right. However, there's a thing called the cross. There is the incarnation of the Son of God who, what, put on human flesh, lived our life, uh, lived our existence, was perfect in all of his thought, word, and deed, and then was hung on a bloody cross atoning for the sin of the entire world, then was resurrected from the dead, uh, defeating sin and death and hell. And uh, if it wasn't for that Christ on the cross, then perhaps we could maybe say that you're right. But there is a Christ who suffered, bled, and died, and rose again. 
And because of that Christ, there is a redemption for you and me, which then makes us children of God. And then once we are children of God in Christ, then everything changes. Everything changes. So the, the, the crux would be whether we are a slave to sin or a child of God. And if we're a child of God, that changes everything. The worldview shifts, the paradigm shifts, everything shifts in how we view life, how we view eternity, how we view uh, this Christian faith. And you know, and I want to bring up something that's a little esoteric, but yes, we have the gospel, and thank God he has revealed himself to us in Jesus. But even with all that aside, what I think a lot of people miss is that God is God. He's the creator of the universe. He's wholly other. And so even if he should not have been gracious, even if he should not have been holy and righteous, um, he's still God. We, we are, no matter whether you believe in him or not, subservient to him. We are creatures. He is the creator. And so thank God that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Thank God that he has so much love for us. He sent Jesus and took on our punishment. Thank God for all those things. But what I think a lot of people miss is that even if God were not those things, there's still nothing you can do about it. And I'm not trying to paint a negative picture of God because he is all those wonderful things. But sometimes I think we we have, as the term is called, right, domesticated the transcendence, right? We've taken God who is wholly other, so beyond our understanding, and made him basically, uh, you know, this just sort of puppet that, that we then attribute human qualities to. Um, do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. And absolutely, I think it really comes back, we could say it this way, uh, when we look at the Garden of Eden, everything was good, everything was true, and and who messed it up? You know, Adam and Eve. And so that's not on on God, you know, that's not on God's table. He gave what? He gave good gifts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Good gifts were given to Adam and Eve. And who messed it up? Our parents did, Adam and Eve. But here's the catch, though, as many people will say, well, that was Adam and Eve. Why should we we be responsible for what they did and so forth? But the fact of the matter is that's a great deal of arrogance to say, well, if I was in the garden, that would never have happened. My goodness, if I was in the garden, I would have made things worse. Uh, I know for a fact I would have made things worse. Um, I'm just not that smart and that bright and that morally acceptable in that perspective. Um, I would have made things worse. And so there's a great deal of arrogance that can be uh, stated when we say, well, yeah, Adam and Eve messed it up, but you know, why should I be held responsible for their actions? Well, because frankly, we would have done it too. And then that comes to your other point that what is completely just and right is that when we confess on Sundays in the confession at our churches that we are poor, miserable sinners that have sinned in thought, word, and deed, we're essentially saying, God, you would be completely fair and you would be good and right if you were to just send us to hell right now. That's what we deserve. Uh, and that that's harsh to hear, but the reality is that's what we deserve. The wages of sin are death, and um, that's what Matt Richard deserves. But yet, then what we hear is that we get to see the pastor stand up and walk up to the font, place his hand on the font, raise his hand, and pronounce the good news of the gospel, that for Christ's sake, we are forgiven, and that we're children of God, we're baptized, we're welcome to the Lord's table. And and. I, I, for the life of me, I, 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 the inside of me just just bubbles with joy, and and I, I'm sometimes surprised that we don't erupt and blow the roof off the church with joy. My goodness, I, I you mean I, I I'm not destined for hell? That Christ has actually forgiven me of 
every single one of my sins. And then, man, I'm an heir of the kingdom of God that I will be resurrected from the dead. I will be, I'm forgiven of my sins, that I'm a child of God, and that no matter what comes my way, um, I belong to Jesus. He belongs to me, and that he will see me through the end, to the very end of the age. My goodness, uh, to be a child of God. And, and, and what a gift that we don't deserve. Being a child of God brings with it freedom, you know, to uh, quote once again from your excellent sermon, by the way. Um, you talk about how um, that being free, free from the fear of evil, from wrath, from death, from eternal punishment, that's the gift God wants to give all people. But then you write, beware, though, freedom is a dangerous thing. Why can freedom, especially Christian freedom, be a dangerous thing? In what way? Well, if we think of it this way, I mean, if we think of maybe, and again, I'm not trying to pick on a person who's entrenched in slavish uh, fear, because we all can be at certain times and in certain ways uh, ensnared to this. But let's just say for the sake of discussion, we keep a, a real clear distinction between somebody in slavish fear and somebody as a child of God. A person who is slavish in fear is going to be functioning in a way, trying to appease um, that which is before them in order to offset any future blowback, any future threat. And so fear then pushes a person to function in a way that they have to, you know, follow uh, the, the, the tyrant or the, the, the tyrant sin. We have to follow uh, whoever is above them in order to cross their T's, dot their I's, in order to somehow evade a future punishment. Whereas a child of God comes in and they know that their future is not one of what? Of destruction, but one of being an heir of the kingdom of God, knowing that through all the things of life that they will inherit the new heaven, new earth with a brand new, renewed 2.0 body, resurrected body. And so their, their assurance is that no matter what may come, that the end for them is good. And that's the freedom of the Christian, is that as bad as this life may get, we know at the very end, uh, there's the assurance of Christ. And so a, you take a situation, whatever it is, the Christian uh, centered in faith in Christ by the gift of God is going to say, come what may, um, I will be okay. I have Christ. Christ has me, and I'll make it through the end. Now, somebody who's enslaved in slavish fear is going to look at that and say, "Why are you so carefree? Why are you so flippant? You know, with this, it's going to be perceived as being flippant. It's going to be perceived as not caring, not not crossing the t's, dotting the i's to evade some future punishment." Now, here's the thing: the Christian can look at a situation and take it with all seriousness and all preparation to to help what be prepared for a future harm or future struggle but they can do it in a way in the fashion by the gift of god with an assurance knowing that uh, if this were to come upon them something bad that no matter what happens that they will be in christ and christ will have them uh, so this is what paul says elsewhere he says i've learned uh, the secret to be what content in plenty or little uh, that I have Christ when I have a lot and Christ when I have little. And so it's learning to suffer in the present day, knowing that the future for the Christian is one of, of uh, being an heir of the kingdom of God. Whereas the suffering of the day for those who are in fear, the suffering of the day, they are presently suffering with no assurance of what the future will hold for them. And so in a way, in the present moment, they are 
ensnared in suffering and fear, and their future is one of suffering, potential suffering and fear, whereas the Christian may endure this present suffering knowing at the very end of the age that there's going to be the blessing of being an heir of the kingdom of God. And so this is where Jesus says elsewhere, he says, your suffering is just a little while. And it, even though suffering may be a long time for the Christian, uh, compared to eternity and using Jesus's words, it's just a little while and this too shall pass. One of the things that you said that I'd like to highlight is that the Christian, when facing, say, the trials and tribulations of this world, they can operate, we can operate with a joyful knowledge that things are going to work out fine. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't take them seriously in the present age or that we don't work to make things better in the present age, but we do it with a different worldview. We're not uh, terrified and petrified that unless we act now, then things are going to uh, you know, be completely destroyed or the ho most horrible thing you can think of is going to happen because we know how it ends. Um, sometimes even I get criticized a little bit because I don't get worked up over politics. Um, I think that some of the things that are going on in politics are extremely important and things for which we must be involved. And I think that exercising your political duties as a citizen of this country are important. But I guess I don't walk around, you know, getting completely worked up and upset or constantly trying to um, combat every new issue that comes on the stage because, well, as a student of history, I see some of the same things being debated and being used to scare people into submission for centuries. Uh, but even just more than that, I, I, I know God's in control. And again, it doesn't move me to being lackadaisical, but it does move me to not being reactive to, to what happens in the world. Right, right. And, and by being in that position, though, those that are ensnared, when I say ensnared, now again, we're all given to fear. Uh, because of our sinful nature. But those that have succumbed to the slavish fear of sin, uh, they will perceive that assurance and that confidence as being, again, laxid, um, well, being lazy, being being uh, flippant, perhaps. And that's not the case. Uh, definitely, that's not the case. And uh, one can be concerned with the present, but do so with a complete assurance, uh, the assurance, uh, assurance that uh, in the end, all things will be made anew. And so, I think, you know, another thing to consider is this, is when we understand the end of the story uh, as a child of God, when we understand the end of the story, that allows us to actually face um, a predicament in the here and now head on. And so, you know, for example, with funerals, uh, with funerals, one of the things is I encourage individuals when we have funerals that we, we want to embrace our tears and our anger. Uh, both of those are valid emotions when somebody dies. Uh, when Jesus uh, came to Lazarus, when Lazarus had died, he wept. Uh, he wept with his dear brother Lazarus. And then also says, the text says that he was deeply moved. In other words, he snorted at death. He was frustrated. And so those are very valid emotions. And we wouldn't have tears and anger towards death if we didn't love that person. And so we can grieve, like Paul says, we grieve like pagans do. Uh, we, we do. We, 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 we anger and we cry in this veil of tears. We turn on the news and we see something bad. We can say, my goodness, this is awful. And we can beat our chest and say, my goodness, this is awful. God have mercy on all of us. And we can do that boldly. But as Paul says, we do not grieve as if people who have no hope. And so I think, I think here's, the, here's the, the split. 
we we don't just have hope and no grief, and we don't have grief without hope. Uh, we have both. And so we look at this world, we look at what's going on, we see the predicaments of our life, we see the predicaments in our neighbor, and we grieve, we grieve boldly, and we anger at sin, we we weep at sin, and then we cling all the evermore to the hope of Christ that he is making all things new simultaneously. And I think that's where the difference is. I think some Christians are misguided in that they only lean on hope and they don't grieve the present situation and they become what do they say? Too heavenly minded for any earthly good. <laughs> and then on the other <laughs> right. hand, and then on the other hand, we have uh, those within the pagan or the slavish fear. Uh, they have no hope. And so they either overly grieve or they try not to grieve because they don't have a solution to the end. But we who are children of God, which is this great invitation for everyone to be a child of God through Christ, who Christ has done that for them. We can grieve this present reality, um, but also clinging boldly to the hope uh, through our tears, through our anger, that Jesus makes all things right in the end. And it is just a little while. Living for our neighbor is a key part of living for Christ and being a Christian who lives within the realm of Christian freedom and and has assurance of salvation. Um, We talk about, you know, you serve God by serving your neighbor, so many Christians out there, Christians should, who I guess should know better, really, because they have the clear testimony of Scripture, but they find themselves living not in slavery to sin so much, even though this can be sinful, but in a self-imposed slavery to earn favor before God. So even people who are so well-meaning and people who I believe have faith in Jesus, but they still have this misunderstanding that Christ is looking for them to live up to their side of the bargain before the deal is going to be made officially. That is, uh, yeah, Christ forgives them, but they still need to to live a, a pretty good, if not perfect, life. Um, how do we, how do we as Christians, or how can we re- tell our audience t- what's the best way to struggle with this, with this, uh, I guess, divide between the old self who wants to be enslaved to sin and the new self who invents new ways in order to be a slave, but does it in the name of God? Well, I think, you know, there's that uh, saying, and I believe it was Martin Luther, he said something to the effect that God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. And uh, I think that's just a a wonderful way of stating it. Um, I think the other thing, too, is when we understand the richness of the gospel and what has been done for us, uh, how can we continually think or even possibly think that we can add anything to what Christ has done for us in the great gift? Uh, in fact, I, I just love it how the Apostle Paul, he kind of plays this game in the book of Philippians. It's almost kind of like this little showdown at high noon with somebody else who has their good works. And he's basically saying, I'm going to really, really loosely paraphrase. Paul is essentially saying, hey, you want to have a little showdown, see who's a better better Christian, who's more righteous. Let's do it. And then the cage match is on or the fight is on. And he says, as far as zeal, I got more zeal than you. As far as education, I'm more educated than you. As far as, you know, my my heritage and my lineage, I have a better heritage and lineage than you. I've crossed my T's. I've dotted my I's. I've accomplished all these great things. And so guess what? I'm more righteous than you. Then he kind of pauses and he says something to the effect like this. But everything that I've done, all that I've accomplished, all the great works that I've accomplished in this life, they are 
I use this word scubala. They're like horse dung. Uh, they're like horse dung compared to the surpassing richness of Christ. And so he diminishes it compared to Christ. And so, you know, man, when we understand just what Christ has done for us and how good his gifts are and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that we don't deserve that are given to us in Christ, how can we think, even for a moment, that we can uh, contribute or add to what Christ has done for us? Uh, the gospel is just that good. And, and it's a lifetime to realize, you know, the more and more that we 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 advance and age in these years in this Christian life, the more and more we understand our sin. We're like, man, he he forgave me of that too. I, I've heard also said before that there's more grace in Jesus than there's sin in us. And that's just profound. And so my point being is when we understand the goodness of the gospel, we we come to realize that there's nothing I can contribute to to make you know, God more pleased with me than he is already pleased with me and Jesus and what Jesus has done. And so when we hear the gospel, what Christ has done, then it's essentially we're freed. Um, I don't need to do good works. Uh, now, hear this out. We, I don't need to do good works as a mechanism or a means to earn self-righteousness before God. But rather, the good works that I do, my neighbor needs them desperately. And so we never stop doing good works. In fact, we do them all the more for our neighbor who is in need, our neighbor who needs us. And we do them unto our neighbor uh, because not to get salvation, but because we already have salvation. And that's the beautiful thing. But then that's the whole problem is that the sinful Adam comes along and wants to turn us inward. And when that happens, when we start doing good works for ourselves and our own achievement, our own merit, our own spiritual resumes, that's when repentance needs to happen. And we say, God, forgive me, a sinner for doubting your goodness and your forgiveness. Uh, turn me inside out, O Lord, and create in me a clean heart so that I may serve my neighbor, knowing who I am in you and that my neighbor needs my good works. Well, I think that's a good place for us to end this morning, and not to mention we're at the end of our time. So I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard. He's the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor, thank you for being on the show again. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, it was, it was a joy. Really fun stuff to talk about. Folks, join us on Monday. We're going to head back into the book of Acts, chapter 11, right in the middle. Uh, in the aftermath of persecution, a ripple is unfurling across the region, transforming the city of Antioch into a beacon of hope. It was there in Antioch where the disciples were first called Christians. And so this new wave of Christianity is taking root. It's penetrating the hearts of both Jews and Gentiles alike. And amidst this divine awakening, we're, we see Barnabas, a beacon of encouragement, fanning the flame of faith. Lots of good stuff to talk about, but that's all going to happen on Monday. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Thank <laughs> you.